As has already been mentioned, what a blessed occasion it is, an opportunity to gather on the first day of the week, even as we are this morning, and to express our heartfelt praise and adoration to the wonderful and the majestic God of heaven. As we make ready to begin the, the sermon today, perhaps a, a just a small statement or word or two, we just sang that song, Lord, here am I, here am I, send me. A powerful song of motivation, a song of compelling thrust to be sure. I might invite each of us to already keep in mind on our radar the 5.30 service this afternoon. At that time, you may have noticed in the bulletin, we'll be looking at a lesson, at least for that part of our service, entitled, Conquering a Mighty Foe. Now, there are foes in life that are appearing to be rather great, and that appear to be very mighty, and that appear to be almost dauntingly overcoming. And yet, there are some things in the Word of God, and we'll revisit an Old Testament passage, and we'll talk a little bit about that tonight. So please keep that on your, on your plans of things to do and be back with us tonight. Make plans to gather at 5.30 with the Pippin Church of Christ. The lesson this morning, as you can see, has to do with some astonishing numbers. Now to say that some numbers are astonishing perhaps at first makes us wonder how large they are. You know, there are some big, big numbers. The federal deficit's pretty big. <laughs> Other numbers, in fact, that make reference to realities of our existence. The weight of earth is a pretty big number. No, those in science can tell us about that. And the distance, say, between the sun and the outermost planet's a pretty big number. But did you know there are some pretty sizable numbers in terms of their significance, but the numbers aren't very big. And so this morning, I'm going to invite you to note some astonishingly small numbers. That is to say, the Word of God points out to us some truths embedded in small numbers. And today, let's just look at a few of them. You'll notice on that slide, we somewhat begin by reflecting upon this truth. Ye shall know the truth the Lord taught, John 8, 32. And by that truth, the implementation of it, ye shall be made free. There are times, in fact, many occurrences in the Word of God in which God has invested and presented His truth in numbers. Think how many times numbers in one form or another occur in the Bible. Today, again, we're only going to look at a relatively few of them. But the first one is the text Brother Colonel read a moment ago. Would you revisit Psalm 14 with me? As you make ready to reconsider that, let me perhaps by introduction to that point, maybe make an obvious statement. I suspect that in your walk of life, you have known some very impressive people in one way or another. Maybe these individuals appeared to always make the right judgment. Maybe they always had tremendous words of wisdom to help you through a particular challenging moment in life. Maybe these individuals were such that in terms of your observation of their interaction with other people, they just had a wonderful way of wisdom. They knew how to deal with people. And as far as you knew, they never made any mistakes. Sometimes as youngsters, we can look upon our parents or our grandparents or maybe an, an uncle or some other nearby friend this way. Sometimes as we give thought to that, there may be individuals in our church family that we adore and admire so highly. But this opening truth is one 
that surrounds the number zero. Hear me now. The number zero. In Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3, the inspired writer again made this statement. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Not even one. As David, the the precious psalmist of days gone by, made this rather remarkable statement. Doesn't it cast a strong spotlight upon not only his understanding by inspiration, but what must be ours as well? And as we develop it on that slide, it's crucial that you and I realize something. There is none of his or her own volition, of his or her own innate capability, none righteous. No, not one. As impressive as some individuals may to us be, as remarkable in many ways as their judgments might otherwise be. And it's not to always cast doubt upon those truths, but it is to recollect this one as well. There's none righteous. While you're holding your finger there, turn over with me to Romans chapter 3, and let's look at the New Testament implication and usage of this passage. In Romans chapter 3, verse number 10 reads like this. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Paul, quoting the Old Testament passage, now makes this application. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. And then, of course, the well-known verse 23 somewhat summarizes that paragraph of activity. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There are several consequences of these statements we've made so far. Perhaps the first ones are these. There are on occasion some very impressive individuals biblically. I've invited you to note two of them. As you reflect upon Joseph, the eleventh son of Jacob... So many ways he stood head and shoulders above his brothers that sold him into slavery. But yet we have to admit even he had his mistakes. There's none righteous, no, not one. What about Daniel? Oh, how beautifully we see his appearance in the book of Daniel. A man who stood with the impressiveness of Daniel 1.8 and said, I purposed in my heart not to defile the Lord. And although that book illustrates his givenness to prayer, even in the face of edicts of men that opposed it, Daniel chapter 6, nonetheless, Daniel had his faults. As you and I consider the fullness of the human family, numbering almost 8 billion on earth at this point, and throughout the past elements in time, we don't know how many billion have lived, but the Word of God stands supreme, none righteous. No, not one. Doesn't that then indicate the following there at the bottom? That powerful admission of the Master when He addressed this very point Himself. Luke 18, verse 19. When that rich young ruler ran to Jesus and said, Good Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The Master replied, There is none good except God. As far as our usages of this principle, 
our application to it, I've asked you to note a few things at the bottom of that slide. First of all, doesn't it immediately suggest what high regard we must have for Jesus? For He did what no human has ever been able to do or shall ever be able to do. He lived without sin. Brother Wayne mentioned that in prayer a moment ago. He faced the temptations we face, Hebrews 4.15. In all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. He never stumbled in that way. Never once did He say the wrong thing. Never once did He go the wrong place. Never once did He think the wrong thing. Never once did He fail to do what He should have done. And none of us can say that that's true of ourselves. We falter, we fail, we stumble. We fall and succumb to temptation. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Doesn't that imply in our mind how highly we should regard the Master and look to Him for our example that we should follow His steps? To borrow the wording of 1 Peter 2.21, even as much as He left us that example, note then another easy implication. We must not place our salvation in the hands of mankind, no matter how noble he or she may appear, no matter how righteous the person may seem. They don't have the words of salvation. The Lord does. That person, you see, is human, and as the text says, none righteous, no, not one. We can't be a sacrifice for our own sins. We can't make appeal to God for any merit in regard to salvation. We don't deserve it. But you see, the Master paid that price for us. None righteous. No, not one. The last thing on that slide. Isn't it sweet to reflect on the wisdom that Peter stated then in John 6, verse 68, when the Lord had preached a particularly challenging sermon, and many of His disciples chose to walk no more with Him. Jesus asked, Will you also go away? And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. John 6, verses 66 to 68. To say there's none righteous, no, not one. Doesn't it remind us how deeply we need what God has done for us? The human family so readily can go astray, and although things appear to be right, we know that we have not the wisdom and the prudence and the concerning discretion to make the right judgments. For isn't it true, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death, Proverbs 14, 12. So the number zero has been our first astonishing number this morning applied to you and me individually and reminding us how the Scriptures point us to the Master as the one who is righteous, though we are not. What about the second number? The second small number. Would you be turning to Luke 15? We will encamp there for a few moments as we reflect upon this small number. It begins like this. The Lord taught three parables in that chapter. They are rather well known. It is the first one that will occupy our attention. May I read it in its fullness. Luke 15, beginning in verse 3. And he spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, 
and go after that which is lost until he find it. And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. I do not think that I say much that isn't already known by you, that 99% is often not only acceptable, but quite frankly, a matter of rejoicing. When a schoolboy or schoolgirl scores 99 out of 100 on an exam, my guess is they're pretty happy about it. At least in my physics classes, if a student scores 99, I don't ever hear the person complain, I think I deserve the other point. Maybe they do, but I rarely, if ever, hear much statement about a 99 out of 100. And quite frankly, if a child, again, with 99 out of 100, likely the parents will praise that child, compliment that child, maybe even reward that child. In other avenues, in other walks of life, 99% is rather impressive. Think about the sports world. In professional football, if a quarterback can complete 70% of his passes, he has had a phenomenal season. And that's only 70%. Think about what it would be like if, by some means, he were able to complete 99% of his passes. Think about baseball. For a player in the major leagues to get on base even 50% of the time is beyond imaginable. In basketball, if a player can shoot a 90% free throw percentage, more than likely they're quite happy. The coach is pleased. Imagine shooting 99% free throw percentage. Almost any sport you can think of, there are particular considerations not too much different than that. Isn't it fair to say we often are not only happy with, but we celebrate 99%. Did you notice here? Jesus wasn't happy with 99%. The master was not satisfied at 99%. A man had a hundred sheep. Ninety-nine of them were safe in the fold. He knew where they were. Apparently all was well. One sheep had gone astray. One sheep wasn't there. So in the farming community, we know pretty well that frequently 99% is not good enough. A farmer who has a hundred sheep will go to find a missing sheep. A cattle farmer with one calf going astray out of a hundred will go to find the one that's missing. The Lord wasn't just giving us an agricultural example, was He? He wasn't pointing only to that matter in, 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 in reality. Because notice again how it ended. He's talking about people. What if there's a congregation of a hundred people one of them goes astray. One turns his back upon the Lord and starts serving the devil. Unfaithful in attendance. Other particulars that might be characteristic of that unfaithfulness. The Lord's concerned about the one. Oh, it's true, He still is concerned about the 99, but they're the ones that's already saved. 
It's the one that's gone astray that's in need of dire attention. It's the one that is no longer marching in the orders of the others. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. Didn't Jesus put it like this? I say unto you, verse 7, that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. The number one is our concern here. The Lord shocked you and me. One percent lost is not, in fact, something to be happy about. Don't you think it usable and reasonable? Most of the time left to ourselves, we'd say 99 out of 100, surely that's good enough. Surely that's acceptable. And the Lord said that there's great joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. And therefore, elders and all of us as Christians will be concerned when someone begins to show signs of unfaithfulness that begin to live in a way that at least shows characteristic unfaithfulness because that's a reason for concern. The Lord taught us this. And if that one will repent and come back to join the 99 faithful, how much joy there is in heaven. Celebration, if you please. A great means of consideration even in that regard. For that reason on this slide, doesn't it point out a few obvious lessons? The absolute value and worth of each soul. Every one of us are immortal spirits. We will live forever. The only question is where? Will it be in heaven or will it be in hell? It's the only two choices we got. And therefore, there should be great concern over that one that went astray. This sheep had lost its way. Didn't Jesus say in John chapter 10 that I am the good shepherd and my sheep will hear my voice? And with great excitement, you and I are able to lift high the value consistent with each soul. Jesus said in Mark 8 verses 36 and 37, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Didn't the Lord highlight for us here in the words of this parable? We can't be comfortable with 99 out of 100, as often otherwise in life as we might be. When it comes to spiritual things, oh, how we should want not only ourselves but all to enjoy faithfulness and look forward to that eternal reward that goes with it. The last thing on that slide is this one. How sweet it was to see the Master exemplifies some of this in the way He interacted with others. In John chapter 4, a Samaritan woman, she'd been married five times. She had marital problems. And the Lord started a discussion with her. It started out about water, I admit, but it ultimately involved living water before it was done. And she perceived him to be a prophet, John four twenty six. Did you notice... He left an indelible imprint upon her. And she went shouting and telling others of the one who had conversed with her. In John chapter 9, the master talked to a blind man. Although there were many times, no doubt, that others encouraged those that were blind. You remember Matthew 10? Be quiet. The master doesn't have time for you. Jesus said, bring him here. He was concerned, you see, about the one, Bartimaeus. 
In that case, in John 9, it was the man born blind. Maybe it leaves us an impression of, again, 99% is not good enough. That doesn't mean we can force people to obey the gospel, but it means in our concern we can pray for them, strive to live before them the proper way, and teach them when that opportunity affords itself so that they too can enjoy the blessing that we have. One percent. The tragedy of the number one there, rather, rather remarkable, isn't it? One last thing on that slide then. Does that remind us of the impressive attitude that Paul had? I'm become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. 1 Corinthians 9.21 So far we've looked at the number zero and the number one. You probably can guess the number that shall appear next. What about the number two in this connection? Or at least in this way. The number two brings us, at least in this case, to develop this thought. Aren't you a bit impressed on occasion what it is that occurs in the human family? Let's face it, we tend to be so different in many ways, different backgrounds, perspectives, different viewpoints and outlooks. And yet, in the midst of all of those differences, it would perhaps be tempting to think, well, surely the myriad of ultimate forces behind those realities and behind those ways of thinking and behind those behaviors is bound to be enormous. But do you realize the Bible says that's not so? In terms of everything that's done, every approach that's taken, every outlook that then stands as the thing that is approached, there are but two possible masters. That's it. Only two. Let's develop some of those thoughts like these. In Matthew 12, verse number 30, Jesus, in speaking at that occasion, made this statement. He that is not with me is against me. In other words, he seemed to highlight even there the simplicity of the number two in this connection. Either you're for the master or you're against him. There is no middle ground. There is no third option. There is no central feature of riding the fence, if you please. To ride the fence is to be on the devil's side. There's no fence straddling with the master. It has never been allowed. He that is not so with me scatters abroad. No wonder in that light, about the middle of that slide, look at some of these verses. There are several different ways this truth is presented. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 6 in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. No man can serve two masters. Even there, did you notice the Lord did not say three? He did not even say any other number than two. The forces in existence in this world boil down to two. Those on the side of God... Those not on the side of God. That's it. Which side do you and I prefer to be on? Which one do we lovingly and thrillingly wish to be on? No man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in mammon. I would suggest that you and I can give some thought to this about the orders of a day. 
Now, I suppose all of us have some commonality in this way. We get up in the morning. Maybe we have in our mind a plan of activity for that day. And maybe one day to another is a very routine thing. We go to work. We take care of the meals throughout the day. We come home and perhaps take care of duties around the house. Or otherwise, we devote ourselves to the activities of that day in light of the demands of the moment. Question. In terms of all those thoughts of that day and those activities, are they consistent with the motivation and the incentive of God? Because if they're not, they have to be on the other side. It is something that would stand opposed to what ought to be done at that moment. What about the thoughts of you and me during the day? How are we doing on this? Philippians 4.8 says that we ought to think on things that are true and honest and just, and pure, and lovely, and of good report. And if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Am I doing okay at this? Or am I thinking about trash, unsoundness, evil, iniquity, that which stands opposed to the upbuilding matters of truth of God? Am I dwelling on those kind of matters? Something to think about, isn't it? What about the language I choose to use? Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. How am I doing at this? No one's making me choose this profane, bad language. No one's making me do it. Am I choosing this? If so, notice I'm serving not the Master known as the Lord, I'm serving the other one. What about the places I choose to visit or attend? Am I choosing wholesome things? The practicality of that is very extreme, isn't it? Two masters is all there is. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, Jesus highlighted, not only in this passage but in other places, about this powerfully small number of two two masters. Now that word mammon that appears in the King James translation, that comes from an Aramaic word that has connection to materialism like money. And if it was true in the ancient Roman Empire that there could well be a pursuit of and a focus on that, how much more might modern day America fall in that category? God has blessed our nation so, and it's so easy to be wrapped up in the worldliness connected to materialism and to pursue those things at the expense of righteousness and faithfulness and devotion to the Lord. We do that to our own detriment. We do that, you see, to our own doom and destruction. For Jesus said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. Mark 12, verse 30. The second commandment, likened to it, to love thy neighbor as thyself. These matters come to all of us. Astonishingly small numbers. Let's close that slide like this. As we reflect then on the matters of a day, we know we happen at the moment to be sitting in a church building on Sunday morning. And it's easy at this point to make those decisions and have at least a mentality of tomorrow and Tuesday, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do better. 
when tomorrow we won't be here to church building. We may not be surrounded by fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Then we'll be surrounded by people of the world, those who are already serving the devil, and it'll be awfully easy to make the wrong choice then. May we have the determination, the dedication, the incentive to appreciate the astonishingly small number of two. If I'm not serving Jesus, I am serving the devil. Make no mistake about it. Let's close this lesson like this. The number zero, not one righteous of our own capability. Oh, how we need Jesus. He is the righteous from God. And you'll notice the number one reminded us even 99% wasn't good enough. For we learn in Luke 15, even the one sheep that was gone astray, Jesus highlighted the need to go after the one. And now the number two. Only two possible masters to serve. Which are you and I serving today? May we be honest. It's not enough just to say, I'm serving the Master. Is my life indicative of that? Have you become a Christian? If you've never been baptized for the remission of your sins, and you have reached that age of knowing the needfulness of that, then may I say, according to the words of God, you, my friend, are lost. You need to come to Jesus at once. You need to put yourself in the number of those in Acts 2 verse 47. The Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. The Lord's the only one that can add you to the church. I can't do it. Elders can't do it. No man can do it. Because it isn't my church. It's Jesus' church. No wonder it's called the church of Christ. And today, if we could make observation of your belief and your repentance and your confession then we would be honored to assist you in baptism. And in so doing, you are then baptized into the church, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. If you have been a faithful Christian at some point, but as of today, maybe you have begun to struggle with some of these numbers we've learned today. In personal application, you faltered and you've made some poor choices. If you've lived in a way that's brought disgrace on the name of Jesus, maybe you've lived as a hypocrite, don't continue in that state. The Lord is excited to forgive you, but it must be a decision you make. He won't force Himself to forgive you. If you come to Him, repent of your sins, make confession of them, we'd be delighted to pray to God on your behalf, just as was done in Acts 8, verses 20 to 22. Today, we're about to stand and sing this song of encouragement. If we could be of assistance in some way, won't you come while we stand and sing?